enjoy lunch? I've, um, I've been a little bit off-put by uh, the controversy that the other guys are starting up, but that's not me, so I figured we'd do a really nice, easy topic like gender roles <laughs> to kick us off after lunch. Uh, and to be honest, there's just too many of you, so I thought hopefully by the end of this session, 10 or 15, we'll get annoyed and leave, and we'll have a, a better... Uh, uh, those who know me now, I'm not joking. So... <clears throat> So far, we've been, we've been uh, uh, hearing such great, great sessions, and, and wow, Joel Beakey, right? What a weapon. You, you could have lined up every Reformed speaker in the world, and I would have betted that you would put him at the last of the line in the question, who do you reckon has been gagged, beat up, and thrown in a room <laughs> by the mafia and prayed his way through? What, a, what an absolute champion and legend of a man. <clears throat> but so far, we've been talking about standing firm in the faith. Uh, not so much how to defend the faith in an argument, that, that'll come, there'll be, there'll be parts of that, but, but how to live a whole life that prepares you and your children and your church to stand firm. So that whether you have all the arguments or not, you're well buttressed, you are supported, you are plugged into God's means of grace so that you can stand firm. <clears throat> this session regards standing firm for and on biblical gender roles in the family, the home, and a society. Jonah, you have not yet put up a timer, and I'm counting from when you start, so <laughs> uh, this doesn't count yet. Uh, now, why is this? Why, why gender roles question in, a, uh, uh, in an apologetics conference? Well, remember, it's a worldview conference. We're going to the foundations of those things that we ought to stand on, and at the foundation of much is who we are in the image of God as gender. No one stands firm for the things or, or for the faith as a whole if there's large parts of it you're extremely embarrassed of. And it's my experience that even those, like we said earlier, who do believe the biblical teachings around gender roles would try and inch around it and be rather embarrassed of it even if they agree to it doctrinally. So we're addressing it and, and in large part trying to say a reminder of what the Word of God says, grounding our theology in the Word of God. Maybe it'll be entirely new for some of you. Welcome. Uh, the chairs are in sections, so you can't throw any of the individual ones. Uh, if it's not new to you, I pray that this pushes you deeper and, and in a more broad sense into what the Bible would say. <coughs> I remember hearing a uh, pastor say, I have a very robust historical and traditional conservative view of genders and gender roles, but that's just not the gospel. I don't make that a part of anything that I preach. Okay, I was expecting something a bit worse than that. Maybe that's your experience generally. You'll have fun this session. <clears throat> that man who says that is a guy who, first of all, has no idea where the society in our culture is raging the hottest battles. So it must be nice to stay in his ivory tower and not actually be a part of the, the, the warfare. But secondly, he's a guy who has no idea how much somebody's life is affected by the gender roles that God has assigned to us. Maybe that's you also. Maybe you've kind of thought of it that way, relegated to a, a tangential section of systematic theology under anthropology and, 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 and really down on the application sides, you might mention such things as gender roles, but, but does that really affect me much? It's, my, case, it's my, my aim in this session to prove that as the case. A little qualifier, this is not a, sish, a session, a session, this is not a session aimed at women. It's a session 
I guess, aimed primarily at men to assist their wives and daughters and their churches in a biblical understanding, but it's not, it's not some axe to grind against gals. It's not a session at those who disagree. It's not a session at those who do agree with me, like an echo chamber. It's, it's a session for both, that we would all go deeper into the Word of God. It's not just a session about church leadership, though that will be one area that we land. Rather, it's a, it's a more all-encompassing, broader, wider, deeper system of thinking around who God has made us to be as male and female. A larger vision for the glory of God in our gender. Now, it's, it's my usual Sunday practice to poke fun at, well, well, to never use a slideshow, and to poke a little bit of fun at pastors who do. Uh, but, but today I'm going to use one because this is not preaching, and I just don't have the time to give to you enough of my communication to get, to get through 16, 15, 16 points. So uh, they're, they're going to be on the, on the screen behind me or in front of you. <coughs> first of all, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Please go there. The first thing, that, and I'm just started, by the way. We're in, uh, we are doing 15 things that the Bible says about gender roles, and we're going to start in Genesis. Lay the foundation there. And the first thing is that gender is fundamental to our image of God. The image of God was not made nebulously, in fact, there's no such thing as a human who just bears the image of God as a human. Every single place, every single person where the image of God is found bears the image of God in a gendered way, either as male in the image of God or female in the image of God. So Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28 tells us that in the image of God, in the let us make man in our own image, and then in the image of, of himself, he made them male and female. He created them. So gender underpins the most important element of our humanity, which is our image of God, which means you can't affirm somebody's image of God and say, well, well let's respect and honor their humanity if by that you mean we're helping them deny their gender that they were born with. You're not affirming their humanity if you're mispronoun if you if you don't mispronoun them let me say it again you are affirming somebody's humanity when you mispronoun them secondly not only is gender at the very base of of our image of god but further we see that gender has a purpose and that purpose is taking dominion so in genesis 1 uh, verse 28 It says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the animals. Fruitfulness and multiplication, or what we might call filling and ruling, we can summarize that as saying taking dominion, so making lots of people, training them in God's likeness and enforcing God's good rule on earth, is a part of our image of God. Because we image, we reflect, we show forth God as we do that. Who is the ultimate dominion taker? Who, who imposes his will onto all things to bring out a, an orderly beauty? So also he calls us to do the same. You multiply things in your own image, like he did. You impose the goodwill of God through your work onto creation, as God did. 
So, and of course, taking dominion is impossible without gender because you can't multiply without gender. You can't do the roles we're supposed to do without the gender distinctions. So again, gender underpins how we image, the God, uh, it, how we image God through taking dominion. Next, go to Genesis chapter 2. In verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. And so he made the woman. Thirdly, we see how different our parts are in the mission based on gender. So gender determines our part to play in the mission. If you are, in this account in Genesis, we see that Adam was formed and then given to the garden, and it says in verse 15, to work it and keep it, to cultivate it and protect the garden, to take dominion in that way. And then Eve was given to him to cultivate him. So that the missions are perpendicular to each other, not parallel, Eve and Adam were not given Two different but parallel missions. They weren't given opposite missions and had to arm wrestle for whose it would be. He was given the mission to cultivate and protect and lead. And she was given the mission to come as helpmate and support and cultivate him. So the gender that you have determines what part of the taking dominion, what part of the mission to image God you are called to fulfill. Fourthly, part of that asymmetry... Part of that gender asymmetricalness is responsibility for the teaching role. So in other words, gender determines who is responsible to teach. We see this coming out of Genesis in the very fact that in verse 7, Eve was not created yet, God made Adam, and then in verse 15 through 17, gives to him the commands. God doesn't give the commands to Eve, he gives it to Eve through Adam. So that Adam was expected and entrusted with the deposit of teaching and the law for the garden so that he was entrusted and, and, and uh, expected to pass it on to Eve. So when God comes then to hold the two people to account for their disobedience in Genesis 3, for breaking the divine law, he comes out and says, Adam, where are you? My law has been transgressed. My teaching has been broken. Where's the teacher? Step up. Come forward. So gender underpins who is ultimately responsible before God for teaching others. Number five, part of the asymmetry we see in gender is also authority. So our gender underpins who is in authority. Adam was formed first. Adam exercised his authority as ruler of the garden. In fact, we're told this as the, as the narrative goes, that, that a part of his job was to be the vice regent, the prince under God over the garden, and God saying, you're in dominion over, you're the Lord over these animals, 
Exercise your good, godly, and, and benevolent rule by naming each of the animals that I bring to you. And it therefore says that, that his rule was law because what he called it, that it was called. And then you see this relationship where when God walks the beautiful woman to her new husband after just making her and waking him up, it's usually the way it works. She takes ages to get ready for the wedding and he's waking up five minutes before. And here God is walking her down the aisle and Adam gives to her a name, a loving, beautiful, romantic name, woman. And that was her name. In the account of Genesis, that, that it is clearly showing a relationship of authority in giving name and she didn't say, like that name, I prefer Anna. That was her name. Just as everything else he had named, now of course, I don't even need to say it, there's a distinction between the animals and her. Chief of them, I mean, no one knew that more than Adam. He couldn't marry any of those. But of course, still yet, his authority was in place. What he called her, she was then called, in fact, it happens again in Genesis 3.20. He says, you'll be called Eve, mother of all living, and that was her name. So the part of our gender, asymmetry, Part of the way gender informs how we fulfill the mission is who gets the authority in male-female relationships and as normative structure. Our world wants to promote and force Christians to accept androgyny. Androgyny is poison in every one of its forms. It is a non-thing. Human androgyny actually doesn't exist. It's made up in the minds of people. If you're not familiar with the term, androgyny means neither specifically feminine or masculine. So if somebody identifies as androgynous, they're, they're going to have their hair cut to a certain uh, 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 medium length. They will present neither as a man or as a woman, and it's an awkward conversation when you're handing them their coffee or saying hello to them. They're, they're identifying in the middle. They're pretending that there's such a thing as human, but not male or female, non-binary. But in fact, that doesn't exist in humanity. It is a figment of our imagination. It is a game of pretend. But, but not just in transgender ideas, but even in the church, we accept a functional androgyny. In Genesis, the image of God is not andro androgynous. It is deeply gendered from the very beginning. And then that gendered image has immediate, as we've seen, immediate implications on everything that we see Adam and Eve do. There is not a single thing they've done so far, either good or bad in the account, that is not immediately connected to who they are in their gender. Androgyny is an attack on God for the three following reasons. It, it's, it's at the root of, before we say the reasons, it's at the root of feminism and theological egalitarianism. The claim that we, we are not ultimately all that different. We are ultimately more alike. The, 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 the distinctions are a result of the fall or a sinful um, assumption. But the removal of gender distinctions is an attack on God because, first of all, it's fruitless. If androgyny mindset could have its goal, then it would remove those things which distinguish. She would not be called woman, taken from man, and she would not be called mother because not all women want to identify as mothers or life givers or taken from man. It's fruitless because it, by removing male-female relations, it, it's an attack on God's dominion mandate. Take dominion, be fruitful, and multiply. And androgyny would want to say, no, we don't need to do that. Secondly, it's idolatrous. If the male-female image of God images the one true God, then an image of God of humanity that is not male or female images a false God. 
So it's idolatrous. When we see the image of God in male-female, we see the image of a false god, the god of our age, in androgyny. And thirdly, it's, it's blatant rebellion. It rejects from the very get-go all of the definitions, all of the created structures that God gave. I will not be what you made me to be. On the deepest level that is literally cellular down to your DNA on every part of your body, I reject all that is in me in that. I reject the fingerprint of God, the image of God, in the way that it has made me. I'm neither imaging him and I will not be male or female. To aim at androgyny is outright rebellion. We are made by God in his image as male or female and that has immediate implications and applications on what we are then to do and live by. So now we can go to the fall, and this will be principle number six. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> and here we see the account of the curse, of course, where, uh, uh, not the, not the oh, sorry, sorry, I've actually sent you too far. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, <clears throat> where we see the fall. The fall happens before the curse. The curse happens in response to the fall. The fall in Genesis 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty, than any other beast in the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, if you don't already know that things are on its head by that point in the verse, you don't have a biblical sexuality or view of gender. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now we think, we often say, the first lie, the first deception that the crafty serpent said was doubting the voice of God in the commandment about the tree. Wrong. He's even more crafty than that. The first deception he did was before he opened his mouth. His deception started in that he addressed the Eve, the woman, the subordinate as the teacher and authoritative voice in the garden. Even before he opens his mouth, he's rebelling against God's created structure. The principle six here is that Satan insulted and attacked the headship of Adam, his teaching responsibility, his authority, and his protection by going to Eve first. He was the first feminist. I need to quote my wife when, 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 she, when she's said something that I've heard for the first time. Satan was the first feminist. Satan was the first theological egalitarian. So she, she quoted Adam's teaching wrongly and then was deceived and then ate. Adam, on the other hand, didn't step in, didn't teach Satan who was in charge, didn't correct his wife's misquotation, didn't reiterate the law of God and then move Satan on. He watched, he was passive, and sinned by eating, though he knew it was wrong. Adam was the first male feminist. Adam was the first beta male. <laughs> the fall occurred, literally, the fall occurred because God's good design of gender roles were turned on their head. That's what happens. Then we see in God's curse. So in Genesis 3, go to verse 16. We see God say to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be, to, shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So you even see, now maybe you didn't notice it there, but our gender actually determines how God curses us. How you experience the curse for sin is determined by your gender. No hands are going to go up in this room, if we're all honest, and we're of the conviction I believe we're at, if I said to the men, how much does childbirth take a toll on your body? Amen, gentlemen? We don't experience it. We experienced crushed hands as our wives are in pain. We experienced lost sleep. and I'm actually, I'm tearing up a bit, I'm sorry. It does take its toll, and we're not often asked about it, okay? A question would be nice. Uh, but in general, the curse of the childbirth falls squarely on the woman. The woman is, uh, but, but, but look at this. The woman and the man are not just cursed differently, like God rolled some dice. They are each cursed in their area of primary fruitfulness. So the thing they're called to do is the thing that God then makes harder. So that where she was given the calling in her name, in her nature, in her, in her creation order, her call was be wife to Adam, mother to children, and homemaker. And so her curse is childbearing will be hard and painful, you'll despise your husband's rule, and he'll have to press down upon you the law of God. It won't be this beautiful, fruitful relationship of complementarity anymore. can be that, but through difficult work. That suppresses your inward desire to buck off the authority of a husband. And then the man is cursed in specifically his area of work and productivity. You, Adam, the field that you were given to, to, uh, to cultivate, the food that you were meant to go and provide through, all of those things are now going to be your area of curse. So we see here God's asymmetrical view of the first man and woman. She's the life giver. That's where she's cursed. She's the, 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 sub, the submitting helpmate. And therefore, those two things are going to be very painful. And he's the provider, the worker, the dominion taker. Therefore, nature will fight his dominion. In creation, in the fall. So this is Genesis. This has been our foundation. In, in creation, in the fall, in the curse... God has shown an extremely clear anthropology where the male is leader, ruler, worker, teacher, woman is helper, subordinate, and life giver. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking that you now allow us a little bit of speed as we race through the rest of the Bible. <clears throat> what we'll now call the Genesis gender roles, which is those things, basically God's view of gender as we just saw in creation fall, curse. The Genesis gender roles are in Genesis and the Old Testament history. This is number eight. God shows forth through Genesis and Old Testament history a clear patriarchal structure. For those to whom patriarchy is worse than a four-letter word, it is simply a system of society or government in which the father or eldest male is the head of the family and descendant uh, and descendants is reckoned through the male line. Or much more simply, patriarchy just means that God's designed the world to have male rule. So in other words, Genesis throughout all the Old Testament shows a very clear patriarchal structure. God chooses Noah. 
and his family with him. God chooses Abraham and his household and family with him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are literally called the patriarchs. And it's not an insult. It's not a claim of toxic masculinity. It's, they're patriarchs. They're fathers with nations beneath them. They are ruling eminent men. The 12 tribes of Israel are named the 12 patriarchs. Israel's entire societal system was made by God from the ground up to be based on patriarchal structure. And it was awesome for women and children. Now, some people say, yeah, of course it was patriarchal. That was, that was the norm of the day around them. I don't know what Old Testament you're reading if you come away from Leviticus, say, going, yeah, that was God's aim. Be as like the other nations as possible. He had them down to the threads they were wearing, the foods they were eating, the paths they were walking, the borders they were allowed to step over or not. He had it down to such an infinitesimal de detail to make a clear distinction between the idolatrous and sinful ways that the other... He didn't even give them a king in order to show the difference. Friends, if there was ever a time when God was literally socially engineering society from the ground up, it was before Israel went into the, into the land and he could have given them a matriarchal androgynous structure. And he did nothing but entirely reinforce it. Patriarchy can go poisonous just as marriage can go poisonous because God's cursed everything. But a misuse does not prove, uh, sorry, an abuse does not negate the right use. God kept intentionally patriarchy because it was his idea. Number nine, the Genesis gender roles are in no way overturned in terms of spiritual authority in the prophets and teachers of Israel. <clears throat> so in other words, let me just be very clear, because some of you are like a soft complementarian. I call those egalitarians or feminists, depending how, how good I feel about the day. But, but a soft complementarian would, would, would feel like some of this is okay to say in a small crowd, but this is a bit awkward, maybe not, not quite what our day needs. But, but on these things, you're not as clear scripturally. I'm, I'm hoping that this is grounding you deeper in scripture. Never is the role of women in over 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus in the whole Old Testament account, in over 1,500 years of Bible writing, God never overturns the, the biblical principle where the authority for teaching in spiritual matters would be given to the women. Priests and Levites of every rank who were the responsible teachers to serve God and teach the people, they were men. No female prophet ever appears in the Old Testament with anything like the public authoritative declarations sent by God as the male prophets. Did God miraculously speak to both men and women? That would probably surprise most of us how often that happened outside of the usual prophetic ministry. Yes. There were women gifted with receiving messages from God and speaking them. Did they both have similar jobs to do? Absolutely not. There is never a case where the woman, where the prophetess, has an institutional authority. There's not a single example we can point to in the Old Testament where a prophetess has an institutional authority like Isaiah or like Jeremiah or any of the prophets that spoke to the kings and the establishment and the people in their day. Miriam is used as, as, as an argument against this in Exodus 15 verse 20. A prophetess, she's called, who after 
after they, 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 they escaped Egypt in the, through the, uh, the, the Red Sea, it says that she began singing and all of the women followed. I can't for the life of me see how that's an argument against what I've said already. She was gifted prophetically in the song and the singing and the women followed. That's in the, that, that, I'm amen in that. Holder in 2 Kings 22, she was a prophet who spoke on behalf of the Lord, but hers was a matter of private consultation when asked. She did not walk the streets preaching and publicly exhortating in that way. There was no decrying the, the public sins in that way, similar to Sapphira in the New Testament. It was a, a personal matter of giftedness in a smaller, more domestic, more uh, uh, private consultation matter. Noah Dyer in Nehemiah 8.3, I read this as an argument this week, ne She's literally a false prophet against Nehemiah and God's purposes. Don't know why that's such a great example. But yes, she's called a prophetess, like Jezebel in, in Revelation. Not really a win. And then there's Anna. In, in old, I know she appears in, in Luke, which is New Testament, but she's still under the old covenant time in Epoch, and she was called a prophetess. But again, even her, in the giftedness that she had, she was somebody who we are told was given to fasting and praying in the temple. Meanwhile, the male prophet John the Baptist was preaching and decrying, exhorting publicly and authoritatively. So we can clearly see, not that God didn't speak to women prophetically, but that they were not given that role of authority. Number 10, so we just saw the Genesis gender roles are never overturned in terms of spiritual authority and teaching. Neither, number 10, are the Genesis gender roles ever overturned in terms of civil authority. In other words, there's no queens anointed by God, ever. In the Old Testament, only kings. And you might say, what about Esther? Well, she was a queen over Persia, not over Israel. What about Athaliah in 2 Kings 11? You know, the, the daughter of Jezebel who slaughtered all the people in her way to get to the throne. Game of Thrones style, I'm told. What about her? I read that also as a little footnote. Also, Athaliah disproves this principle that the complementarians often say, and they moved on. I went and looked up the account. Oh, great example. Slaughtering everybody to get herself to the throne, and then she's slaughtered when the rightful heir, the seven-year-old Joash, is revealed. When you lose in a leadership contest to a seven-year-old, you're not a good example for anything. <laughs> then we might go, but well, what about, what about Deborah? Judges four to five. Now, this deserves some time. Uh, didn't she rule over the nation as a judge? Didn't she lead the military to victory? Didn't she gain success as a prophet? Almost kind of no on all of those answers. She provided consultation as a prophet and a judge to the Lord, not, as we said, public declarative authority. And in context, her leadership is shown throughout her account as a shameful rebuke to the men who refused to lead. The most clear part of this is when she didn't lead the military, so that's another point. She didn't lead the military as judge like the other male judges did. Rather, that was Barak. And when she had a prophecy from the Lord, which she gave to Barak in that private consultation, he said, I'm not going to go into battle unless you go with me, Deborah. And she said in an insult, because you have refused to obey the voice of the Lord and have said, only if the woman leads the charge, God will give the victory into the hands of a woman today. And it wasn't really Deborah. The hero of the story is actually Jael, who was, who was in her... Now, here's where we see, where was this hero of the story when the action takes place? In her home doing domestic duties. 
How did she win? She brought the enemy king who was running away, said, come on in here, I'll look after you, laid him down, gave him a very hospitable drink of milk, all very exemplary of female gender roles, and then drives a tent peg through his head. Pretty cool. I'm going to make that normative, okay? <clears throat> she, so the hero of the story is Jael, who is in her home, and, and not because she rode out in front of the army. Again, the, the, the whole scenario of Deborah is in fact the rebuke to the men, which is why Isaiah 3.12, in the context of absolute rebuke against God's people, and he's saying they are a mess. Their fools are in, are in authority. They are, they are desiring destructive things for themselves. He says, Isaiah 3.12, youth oppress my people. Women rule over them. In other words, how weak can a male society get when the kids are ruling and oppressing them, even beat up by an eight-year-old, it's not easy, to, not easy to win. I have young nephews. Good backhand does it. <laughs> I don't know how illegal that, that joke was. Um, and women rule over them. You're, an Israelite was supposed to read that and think, what? Women were ruling over them? What an unhealthy society that had turned their way against the created structure of God. Number 11, the Genesis roles for gender are not overturned for women's primary calling. So in other words, the whole Old Testament reinforces the fact that women are called to be life-given, are called to be things that males can never do. Just like males are called to do things that women should not and really can never do. They are called to be life-givers and helpmates. In other words, the three things I have been pointing to, wives, mothers, homemakers. Kevin DeYoung, and I'm quoting him because this is good. Kevin DeYoung says, if you study a biblical theology of womanhood in the Old Testament and New Testament, almost every time a woman, a woman is distinguished in the Bible, it's either for who she is a wife of or who she was a mother of. Sarah the faithful wife of Abraham. Sarah, the mother of Isaac. Rachel and Leah, the mothers of the 12 patriarchs. Ruth, you spend the whole book thinking, this is an exception, it's all about her, she's just the hero of the story. And then, and then the last line tells you why she's so significant, because she's the great-grandmother of the King David. Proverbs 31 an argument, right? Here's, here's the argument. What we see in Proverbs 31 is, in fact, this ideal woman, it's not written to women, it's written to young men, saying here's the kind of woman to chase after, somebody who make clothes of fine fabric and bedding of nice fabric. She's not idle. She manages finances and home resources. She speaks with wisdom. She farms food. She's up early. She works late. She buys land. She makes profitable sales. She's generous to the poor. She fears the Lord. She's praised in public gatherings. She, little side note, does much more than just homemaking, right? No! If you think that all of that is like cool stuff on the side of homemaking, you have a feminist-informed view of what homemaking is. Vacuuming dishes, maybe a meal, if there's not a, a, uh, a takeaway place around the corner. That's homemaking. All this other stuff is the exception. See, women do more, are called to do more. She's being glorified for doing more than just homemaking. Not true. 
everything she does there, this glorious picture of womanhood that we're being given, all that she's doing in these amazing ventures is in fact all oriented and focused on her household. Home make, making the home a little kingdom for her king, her husband. In fact, that's why some of the key phrases in there says, she has her husband's confidence. He trusts her with the management of enormous amounts of wealth and resources, including the souls that he's helped to bring into the world. And it says, she provides food for her household. Her children rise up and call her blessed. That's the crown on it. That's the crown, that her children rise up and call her blessed, for she was oriented towards them in raising them as the future adults they would be. So what is the universal testimony of the Old Testament? The men are called to be the rulers, the providers, and the teachers, the husbands. The women are called to be wives, mothers, homemakers, helpmate. Principle number 12, New Testament now. This is where apparently I, we, we lose all our, 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 our footing now. Now it's all over to the feminists and the egalitarians and the equalists and the androgynous people. Now it's Jesus, and he's going to remove all of this, right? Jesus did nothing other than reinforce gender roles. In Mark 10, verse 1 through 10, he, he simply gives out and spits out a very traditional, normal Genesis view of marriage, male-female, means marriage, you know, therefore no divorce and all other abstractions from that. And then he appointed no female apostles, which would have been the perfect opportunity. Now, don't tell me it's because Jesus didn't want to rustle feathers they might have killed him. <laughs> he appointed no female apostles. He had that perfect opportunity so that they could then say, despite the fall, despite the Old Testament, Jesus, show them we're more than just homemakers. Show them that, that all of the, the things that we do outside and inside the home in these majestic Proverbs 31, it's not just all about the kids and our husband. We have our own thing, our own mission, right? Show them that. Though, though we're not bound up by the jail of the home and the prison of marriage, we can be ruling the church. We can be teaching authoritatively. And he didn't do it. He appointed 12 men who you cannot argue were smarter than 12 women. You read the accounts of these guys, it was not because of their competence. It was because Jesus understood and knew, obviously, the roles that were inherent to the genders. <clears throat> he healed the women. He taught the women. They financially supported him. They traveled with him. They witnessed his suffering and his resurrection when the men had cowardly run away. They were disciples in every single meaning of the word. But even then, if we look at the examples, much of their service was around the areas of hospitality, domestic-related service, and the food and the tending to their needs and their comforts because they believed the Bible, not the feminists. And it wasn't a problem for them. They didn't, they didn't submit to the prison. They were serving the king of kings as women. They didn't need to replace men or compete with men. They loved that they were made as women. And then Acts and the epistles, this is number 13, Acts and the epistles do nothing, but abs uh, they do nothing to overturn the Genesis gender roles. We see the women who are servants, ministers, deacons, hospitable. They hosted house churches. They were mothers to the apostles spiritually. They evangelized, prayed, prophesied, learned, trained other women, ministered alongside their husbands. None of that is an argument against what we're saying today. They're usually used as straw men. See, they do this. Therefore, they can be pastors. That's not the argument. 
The reality is they are never voted into pastoral office or even seen to be wanting that except for in the, situ the, the context of rebuke. They're never even seen preaching to a church congregation or being in whatever looks like in any way authority over husband or men in the church. Now we'll say, what about Priscilla? Didn't she sit down with her husband and discuss theology and correct a man of God? Yes, and? Every gal should be doing that, sitting down with people in the church and correcting stuff and having discussions around the word of God. Also, the fact that her husband is literally present doesn't help their case on that. Priscilla was a Bible-loving woman, knew what she was called to. And that didn't stop her from getting into some of the theological discussions with Apollos. But number 14, Acts and the epistles, in fact, reinforce the gender roles of Genesis 1 to 3. They don't, they don't go against it. They, in fact, reinforce it. Because even when we do see Paul's command, get those gals to train the other gals. Get the older women to train the younger women. Teach them. In Titus 2, verse 4 and 5, what they're to train them and teach them to do is not some next to the pastor's women's pastor, but rather, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The calling remains in a normative sense, in an authoritative sense, wife, mother, homemaker. The same brand of godliness as every other book of the Bible. And then lastly, the pastoral and preaching office is exclusively for the men, Paul says. Just as you would assume if you were reading everything we've just read and now you're asked, now who preaches in the Bible? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. Line by line, here's what it says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now what, is, what does that mean? Is we've, he's just said quiet and submissive. Doesn't mean silent and unseen. It means quiet in respect to teaching, not teaching. And then submissive in the area of authority, not authoritative. We know that's exactly what he means when he says quiet and submissive means not teaching and not in authority because he clarifies by saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, which what we've just said a bunch of the guys do on a Sunday as well. Remain quiet and learn. Don't rise up as teacher or authoritative. For, here's his reasoning, Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he's just doing what we did at the beginning of this talk. Don't you look at Genesis and see the order of creation and the responsibility in creation and the image of God in creation and come away with the conclusion, Paul's saying, that he's the mission leader, that he's the one in authority, that he's supposed to be the teacher. Don't you see that? He's saying, for Adam was formed first, not Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, she stepped from her area of calling, which is her strength. We don't get to say, well, I've got strengths that are outside of my calling. We're only ever in our strengths when we're under the right calling. She stepped from her strength, which was in the calling of wife, helpmate, homemaker, and tried to become authoritative teacher. And so down the dominoes went. She went from her place of strength to her point of weakness. She was not created to be the disputant and the teacher and the authoritative protector. That was Adam. This is the perfect, therefore, he just goes to the perfect, unarguable example of what will happen when God's gender roles are ignored. 
Yet, verse 15 says, yet she, you thought I was going to skip this one, yet she will be saved along with childbearing if they continue in the faith and loves and love and holiness with self-control. If she doesn't aim at the weak point, which is supposed to be the man's strong point, she doesn't sin by, by, by bucking off God's created gender roles and she stays in her strength, that's the thing that women are saved along with. In other words, that's the good fruit that comes out of a genuinely saved heart. Just as we would never say a man is walking in his, uh, working out his salvation with fear and trembling where he's stepping back, where he's being feminine, where he's not protecting, leading, and teaching, so also the woman is not that either when she is outside. And therefore, the next verse literally starts going to the qualities that men should have to be pastors. So he goes from saying, women, don't be like Eve, stay in your calling and strength, to then saying, men, don't be like Adam, step up into your calling and strength. It is the clearest of all the cultural issues, I think, of our day. Here's the conclusion. We should praise what God calls praiseworthy. Is that pretty, pretty basic? If God calls it praiseworthy, we should call it praiseworthy, and we should praise it. If God says it's not praiseworthy, we don't praise it. And yet, our day would have us praise what God calls unpraiseworthy and, 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 fail, and refuse to praise what God calls praiseworthy. In our day, the more a man acts like a woman the more he's accepted, a much more institutionally friendly, much more hireable, much more safe as an employee and a church member. The more a woman acts like a man, the more she's accepted. And the more she acts like a, like a biblical woman, the, the less comfortable she is to, 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 to be around. These are tragically true in the church as well. When a woman prioritizes her home and her children and her husband's mission, she's told that she's probably idolizing marriage She's neglecting her own goals and she probably just reads too much Jane Austen. It's a phase you'll get out of it. The more she pursues a career for her own sake, neglects the home, competes with her husband, second guesses her husband's leadership, acts tough, pursues church leadership, she's encouraged, she's subsidized, she's praised. But that's not what God calls praiseworthy womanhood. The more a man leads his wife, rules the home, distinguishes himself for hard work, is immovable by the emotions of the people around him, especially the women, who sets a mission for his life and family, who disciples his wife and children, including what biblical submission looks like, refuses to be stepped on and manipulated by others. It's called toxic masculinity. He's called fragile. He's warned about that patriarchal movement, you know, and he's mocked as being a fake macho. But... Were he to become more emotionally malleable by the women around him, soft-spoken and undistinguished, forgettable and weak all round, not militant or goal-oriented, the kind of guy that just goes along with the flow, quick to obey, slow to question, slow to take leadership, the less he calls people to arms for a mission, the more he is encouraged as really meek, gentle, and lowly. The real Christ masculinity. He's praised, but that's not what men, that's not what the scripture calls praiseworthy, not for you. So men, find a praiseworthy woman, stand up, work hard, lead, sweat, bleed, teach, provide, protect. Women, look to the needs of your family, prioritize the household and home, be the best helpmates to your husbands that you can possibly be to men and women. If we do this, we will take dominion and the waves of the sexual revolution and the shameful froth that they throw up will pass right on over us. Praise God. God bless. <clears throat>